we're into the fifth week of our series, Love Different, and we're learning in this series that God wants us to treat people the way that he has treated us. And if you were here, we began the very first week by looking at a very controversial statement that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. You've probably memorized this by now, but he said this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And basically, Jesus is saying this, if you make the decision to follow me, uh, this is where I'm going to be taking you in this relationship. But what we've learned in our series is that when we hear that, our immediate response is, well, that may work for some people, that may be realistic, but you really need to hear my story. Because at some point in our lives, all of us feel like we've been mistreated, maybe we've been abused or ripped off, and, and so we naturally wonder, that, you know, God, in light of what ha this person did to me, I mean, God, you know what happened, you know how traumatic it was, do I really have to love that person? The problem is this, when we begin to focus, uh, think that way, we naturally begin to focus on what, you know, what's fair, what's, what's just, what's, you know, what are our rights, you know, I gotta have certain respects, I gotta be treated a certain way. And without ever meaning to, we begin to do what comes natural in our relationships. We try to convince people to see life from our perspective. We try to manipulate people to think the way we want them to think. Uh, we try to control people to get them to do what we want them to do. And it's because basically most of us enter into relationships for what we can get out of it. So we have, to, we have to convince and manipulate and control to make sure we get what we want, what we need out of the relationship. We have to make sure we get our fair share. We have to make sure we get treated the way we think we ought to be treated. But as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, none of that automatically changes just because at some point in your life you make the decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. The problem is this, when we approach our relationships that way by convincing and manipulating and controlling, without ever realizing it, we don't know what's go going on, we end up destroying our relationships because anyone who's ever been convinced, anyone who's ever been manipulated or controlled in a relationship, they will tell you the takeaway from that kind of relationship is rejection. And again, without ever meaning to, this certainly isn't our plan, it's not our strategy. We end up destroying the relationships with those who are most important to us, maybe the closest to us because relationships as we saw a few weeks ago they don't thrive on rejection we know that relationships thrive on acceptance so Jesus comes along and he says well listen if you don't want to destroy your relationships and I think Jesus is saying I'll assume you don't right if you don't want to destroy your relationship then you're gonna to have to come up with a different approach to your relationships and basically you learned that Jesus said instead of trying to convince people and manipulate people and control people you need to start focusing on serving people and submitting to the people in your lives and even sacrificing for the people in your lives and I got to tell you I've heard some incredible stories I've gotten some great emails about how some of you a few of you have gone out and said I'm gonna change my life I, I realize that I've spent my life this way now I'm gonna begin to live my life as it relates to my relationships by the standard that Jesus Christ has called me to I think that's really cool but let me just say this serve submit sacrifice the first step at changing your approach to relationships is learning how to serve one another. And I'll tell you why serving is so important. It breaks the grip of self-centeredness in our lives. But yet it still amazes me how few of you are willing to do that. So I'm just going to tell you, I got a migraine. I can say anything I want to this week. If you won't at least take the first step to serve others, you can forget submitting to or sacrificing for others it's just theory from here on out 
I mean, it could be something as simple as parking a car, greeting a guest, changing a baby's diaper, being a small group leader for fifth grade boys or middle school. There's a number of things you could do to serve, but if you're not willing to begin by serving, just going to the website and hitting that serve button or the phone app and hitting that serve button and finding out how I can get outside of myself and invest in the lives of other people, if you can at least do that, you can forget submitting to other people. And you can certainly forget sacrificing for other people. So just, you know, put that in your pipe and smoke it. But anyway, uh, that was free. It's free. Now, uh, this weekend, we're going to start to turn the corner in our series, and we're going to begin the process of learning. Okay, now what do we do? We know what we have to do. We have to begin to serve, sacrifice, and, and submit. How do we begin to repair the relationships that we've hurt, we've, the relationships in our lives that are broken down, maybe even destroyed the, because all the years we spent convincing, manipulating, and controlling? And I want to begin this part of the series as we kind of change our, uh, our focus over the next few weeks uh, by talking about how do we even avoid getting into the situation where our relationships are broken down, some cases even destroyed. If we could just avoid getting there, boy, our lives would be simpler, wouldn't they? I'll give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, I, I'll never forget, I was sitting in my office with a young couple. I absolutely adored them. I did their premarital counseling, and here it is a few years after they were married, and, 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 and now the relationship has become toxic. I mean, uh, profanity and abusive language, just sitting in my office, and the hatred and the animosity and the lack of trust. And then all of a sudden, this young girl, she, she just put her face in her hands and she began to weep and I'll never forget this the rest of my life she said how in the world did it ever get to this that's a good question because a few years earlier when I married them they were two starry-eyed lovers right and I can guarantee you when they stood in front of me that day they never thought they would end up in my office nobody ever wants to end up in my office it's like the principal's office you don't want to go there right you see, when we get married and we stand there and say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, we don't say until we get divorced. See, that's not even an option, is it? I mean, we're in it for the long haul. We're in it to death ends this thing, right? But because of the hurt in the relationships and the relationship, because of their inability to work through and resolve issues that had come up during their marriage, I'll be sad to say, but their marriage ended. And I think a big part of the reason is because they never learned to deal with their issues. They, they never learned how to resolve conflict. And I'll just tell you, when, when conflict goes unresolved, the result is always going to be the same. Uh, best case scenario, you damage your relationship. Worst case scenario, you destroy your relationship. You end your relationship. And I think part of the problem is most of us have never really had any training in our lives as how to resolve conflict. And if we haven't had any training as to how to resolve conflict, especially if we don't know what the Bible has to say about how do we approach, how do we deal with conflict, well, odds are we're going to end up handling conflict the way our family handled conflict because that's pretty much our role model. I mean, you may have said, I will never act like my parents, but you're going to end up acting like your parents. I'll give you an example. Some of you grew up in homes where when conflict surfaced, everybody just loved it, baby. Just kind of coiled up into the strike position like, yeah, let's go. You know, a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling, a lot of venting, a lot of profanity, a lot of hand gestures, you know, spit flying. And if you grew up in the Northeast like Boston, Jersey, New York, that's just the kind of way you handle conflict, right? Others of us, the exact opposite. We grew up in homes where we didn't talk about things. 
You know, don't deal with it, ignore it, it will go away. So, you know, if you grew up in the South, you know, some reason you're just kind of quiet about it, you don't say anything, you sweep it under the rug, and we even learn little phrases to help us. Like, we'll look at somebody, it's like, bless their heart. <laughs> Which in Latin means, I hate you, you're an idiot, and I'd love to poke you in the eye with a needle. That's, that's literally what it means in the Latin. But doesn't it sound so much more spiritual to say, bless their heart? You know, I mean, let's just not deal with it. Others grew up in homes where conflict was handled by walking out or walking away. In other words, when your parents disagreed, either mom or dad, they would take off. Maybe they would abandon the relationship for a while. And then maybe a few days later, they'd show up. And and you're not going to bring up the issue now because you're just so glad to have them home again. You see, like it or not, we often find ourselves acting like our parents or maybe acting like other family members when it comes to conflict Resolution. So what do we do about it? How do we change? How do, how do we break these bad habits that maybe we've been, that have maybe, you know, I don't know, just controlled us for years? Well, this weekend, we're going we're gonna to look at what the Bible has to say about how to handle conflict and how to deal with our differences. I want to begin by sharing some things about conflict that we all need to remember. And I've shared this stuff before, but it fits so perfectly into this series. I want to share it again because you know what? This is one of the biggest struggles for me in my life. Dealing with conflict. Now, it gets a little older as you get, a little easier as you get older and a little bit wiser and you realize it's not going to go away. It's going to have to be dealt with. But if I'm still growing in this area, I'm assuming there's a lot of you who need to grow in this area also. So let me just give you some things about conflict you need to remember. First of all, conflict is inevitable. Okay, just just understand that. If you breathe, you're going to have conflict. If you breathe, you're going to have disagreements with other people. The only people in life who don't have conflict are dead people. Okay, and, and so if you don't want to fall in that category, just keep that in mind. Conflict is inevitable. Second, in every conflict, there are two ingredients. There's an issue, and then there are the viewpoints. I mean, let's face it, none of us see everything the same way. And it's because we're from different backgrounds. We have different scars in life. We have different life experiences. And because of those variables, uh, when, we, when we're faced with the very same issues, we won't see it the same way. I'll give you an example. Last week, uh, I was up in Boston. And uh, we we're continuing to celebrate Laura's birth month. You guys thought I was kidding, but it's true. And, uh, and we're in the airport at Logan International Airport getting ready to fly back. And we're sitting at the gate. And over the, over the intercom, it says, would Roy Williams please come to the gate? And you could hear the excitement and the buzz. Roy Williams might be on our plane. The great herald. Roy Williams, University of North Carolina basketball. And the excitement was growing. And I got my bag. And Laura said, where are you going? I said, I'm walking home. I'm not getting on a plane with Roy Williams. That's like getting on a boat with Jonah. I mean, there's no way that's going to end well. I'm not going down with that guy. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Same issue, different perspective, okay? And that's true in every relationship. I mean, we have friends that we are just polar opposites when it comes to politics. We're still best friends, but we're polar opposites. I mean, when we have discussions, it's like they're looking at me like, how can you be such an idiot? And I'm looking at them like, how can you be such an idiot? And it's because we see the same issue. Yeah, there needs to be health care reform. We get that. Yeah, we need better education for our kids. We get that. Yeah, we'd like a better economy. We get that. But we just have different perspectives as to how that should be accomplished, different points of view. By the way, let me just say this. The issue always involves a principle. The viewpoints always involve temperaments, life experiences, personalities, and the principles are usually pretty clear. They're black and white. It's the personalities, the temperaments, the life experiences that that get in the way and complicate matters. So just remember, in every conflict, there are two ingredients, an issue and viewpoints. And then third, in many conflicts, each side is valid. 
And that's really hard for those of you who feel like you always have to be right. But often in conflicts, each side is valid. Uh, David Augsburger has written a little book entitled Caring Enough to Confront. It is the best book ever written from a biblical perspective on how to handle conflict. We have copies of these available at Lifeline Bookstore. Uh, I think they're eight bucks. I would really encourage you to pick one up. But one statement he makes in the book is this. Conflict is neither right nor wrong. It just is, and you've got to deal with it. It's just going to be there. You've got to deal with it. Now, I want you to think about maybe an unresolved conflict you have with an individual in your life right now this morning, okay? Maybe it's the person that's sitting beside you right now. Awkward, right? Because we're going through this together, right? Uh, maybe it's between you and your boss. Maybe it's a fellow employee. Maybe it's between you and a friend or a business partner. Maybe it's between you and a roommate. Maybe you've worked at it. Maybe you haven't. But what I want you to see is that maybe this very same kind of conflict that you're going through right now occurred between two of the most respected men in the New Testament. Their name were Paul and Barnabas. And not only were they godly men and godly leaders, they were also best friends. In fact, Paul, the great apostle Paul, he owed more to Barnabas than any other person on the earth. Give you an idea, just the name Barnabas, you know what it means? Son of encouragement. That tells you a little bit about Barnabas. And Barnabas was the one who ran interference for the great apostle Paul after Paul's conversion. See, understand, up to the time Paul became a follower of Jesus Christ, his name wasn't Paul, it was Saul, and his job was to persecute imprison and if necessary put to death people who were Christians people who had begun to follow Jesus Christ he hated Jesus he hated Christians and that was his job until one day on the Damascus Road he had that encounter with Jesus and he became a follower and his life changed forever okay imagine the guy who's been persecuting your relatives put to death your neighbor showing up in your church one week to worship with you how's that going over right Everybody was suspicious. Was this really a transformation or is he a mole? Is this just a way for him to find out who we are so he can put us to death, right? Barnabas is the guy who came alongside Paul, put his arm around him and says, this guy's the real deal. I vouch for him. That's the kind of friendship that they had. But they ended their relationship over an issue. We look back now and say, seriously, what was the big deal? That makes no sense whatsoever. Let me show you the conflict. If you have your Bible or your phone, uh, turn to Acts chapter 13. If you are using your phone, try not to uh, look at your fantasy team right now, guys, okay? Uh, Acts chapter 13. And it, it, it's, it talks about Paul and Barnabas. They're setting out on their first missionary journey together. And it says in chapter 13, verse 4, Paul and Barnabas sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John, also known as John Mark, was with them as their helper. Think of John Mark as a missionary intern. He's an up-and-comer. He, he's, he's, he has a good heritage. He's had some training. He's a natural to take on the journey. In fact, if you wonder about his credentials, this is the same John Mark who later on wrote the Gospel of Mark, okay? So he's got some good heritage. He's got some good genes. And the three of these guys, they take off on this journey together, and it says in verse 13, from Pappas, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark sailed over to Perga in Pamphylia where John left them to return home to Jerusalem. Now, we're not sure why John Mark bailed here, but historians do tell us that uh, the Pamphylian coast had high, ragged cliffs when you got there. Uh, it was known for its very, very hot days, tropical days, very, very cool, cold nights. It was a breeding ground for malaria. Not only that, there were a lot of bandits and robbers, Carolina fans, need I say pirates, that were kind of roaming the coastline, you know. <laughs> Serious. But anyway... 
And so for some reason, John Mark, you know, he says, I'm not cut out for this, you know, and he heads home from Mama. And I get it. I get it. Um, I'll never forget the first time Carl and I, we took a mission trip. See, I never even had a passport. I thought if I want to see the world, I'll go to Epcot. You know what I'm saying? And... Uh, <laughs> Finally, we land in Central African Republic, Bangui. At that time, it was the poorest country on the planet. The average annual income, $240 a year. And as Carl and I are, are in Jim's Jeep, making our way from the airport to the mission compound where we're going to spend the night before we head out into the, into the rainforest, um, to see the poverty and the oppression, I mean, I had never seen anything like this in my life. And I understand that. I mean, my first desire was, can we U-turn, go back to the airport and go home? I, so I get that. So John Mark, for some reason, he's overwhelmed by the enormity of what's going on, and he, he heads home. And in Paul's mind, he's a flake. You can't count on him. In fact, Paul immediately wrote him off as a loser. It's like he's dead to me, right? But you'll notice, if you read the story, Paul and Barnabas, they go on. They, they finish out the trip, but they, they finish it as a, as a duo instead of a trio, Right? Now, that sets the stage for the conflict between these two best friends. It says in, in, John, in chapter 15, verse 36 of Acts. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord, and let's see how they're doing. Let's take another road trip. They'd started these small churches. Paul says, let's go back and check up on them. And, and, and I'm sure that the very first thought Barnabas had was this. Great, I'll get hold of John Mark, and I'll tell him to pack a bag. Look at the rest of the verse. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them. See, now we have the conflict. Now we have the issue. Here's the issue. Should John Mark be given a second chance? Here are the viewpoints. Barnabas says, absolutely, that's what Christians do. Paul, no way in the world we've got a mission to accomplish, and he's not going to help us accomplish it. Now, first of all, I want you to see the viewpoint of Barnabas. Understand, Barnabas is a people person. He has a lot of compassion, a lot of mercy. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's an encourager. And he feels John Mark, probably embarrassed, probably needs some encouragement, probably needs another chance. And we can all relate to that because we can all remember a time in our lives where we needed a second chance. None of us would probably uh, be here this weekend if we only got one chance. You wouldn't have a minister this weekend. I mean, we wouldn't have many parents if, if the first time you blew it as a parent, they took the kids away from you, right? You blow it a lot. You're still stuck with them. You know what I'm saying? So the point is we need a lot of chances. So we understand where Barnabas is coming from. We can relate to that, verse 38. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he, John Mark, deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. In other words, he says, Barnabas, you have got to be kidding. Are you, are you seriously? He bailed on us. When we needed him the most, he's home watching Dancing with the Stars with Mommy. He's unreliable. We're not taking him. So Barnabas, they, they see the issue, but Barnabas is looking at the man. Paul is looking at the mission. He's looking at the task. He's looking at what needs to be accomplished and the kind of person that can help them accomplish it. Verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. By the way, we get our English word paroxysm from the Greek word translated disagreement. It means a sudden attack, a convulsion, a violent emotion, and action. That's what happened between Paul and Barnabas. There was this convulsive-like argument. There was this explosion-type argument, and it grew out of this conflict. Maybe it was like Paul, you know, Paul was saying, Barnabas, you know, we're not taking that loser. You're such a softy. If we're really going to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish, you're going to you're gonna have to toughen up, Barnabas. You follow your heart too much. And maybe Barnabas said, Paul, you're so mean. You're so black and white. You don't want to disappoint the great apostle Paul. And Paul, where would you be if you hadn't gotten a second chance? And there's little digs in there. It's going back and forth, right? 
But understand, that's the way it is in most conflicts, that there are good points on both sides. On both sides. And maybe, maybe that's the way it is in your situation right now that's unresolved with your spouse, your child, your coworker, your roommate. But now the line is drawn, the wall is built, you're at a standoff, maybe the relationship is broken down, maybe close to being destroyed. And I would love to say the good news is they worked it out. But verse 39 tells us that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. And verse 40 tells us that Paul chose Silas and he headed off in the opposite direction on missionary journey number two. But this is what I believe. I believe that when Paul got on that boat and he headed off to sea, I believe he left that port with a heavy heart. You see, he won an argument. He proved his point. He got his way, but he lost his best friend in the process. He killed the relationship. Now, uh, unfortunately, this isn't just a, an ancient story, a historical account in the Bible. This is something that happens in our lives all the time. We'll have an issue with a friend, somebody at work. We'll have a conflict. It's not resolved. And one day we look back and we realize that another relationship has bitten the dust. So this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how do we work through conflict and in doing so, how do we save relationships so we don't get to the point that our relationships are broken down and destroyed. And I've said a lot of time for application and I don't normally encourage you to do this, but this would be one of those weekends I would say grab, grab your phone, your iPad or go old school and get a pen and a piece of paper and, and just take some notes because I think there's some really applicable things for all of us here this weekend and there's a, there's a lot of room for all of us to grow. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. When in conflict, work hard at seeing both sides of the issue, not just your own. And that takes a lot of work. I mean, let's face it, most of us suffer from ingrown eyeballs, right? We tend to see everything from our point of view, and that's it. And we wonder, how in the world can they be so blind? How in the world can they not see what is so obvious? Do you remember a few weeks ago when we were looking at the, the role model Jesus was in Philippians chapter 2? And we saw this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interest of others. Don't just look out for your own interests. Look out for the interest of others. What does it take to do that? Well, it takes, it takes objectivity. You know what else it takes? It takes humility. It means that I have to put myself in his or her shoes and say, and be humble enough to say, you know what? They may have a point. So when in conflict, work hard at seeing both sides, not just your own. Second, when both sides have good support, look for a compromise. And by the way, from what I can tell from the story, that's what Paul and Barnabas wouldn't do. And there are compromises. I mean, Paul and Barnabas could have sat down at Starbucks and say, let's do this. Let's leave John Mark at home. Let's give him a list of things that, uh, that we need him to accomplish. And if we hear through the grapevine that he's accomplished the small things, we could send for him and he could meet us midway through the journey. That would be a compromise. They didn't do that. And in the same way, in many of our relationships, we're so insecure, we're so bullheaded, everything is so black and white, we don't want to give an inch. I mean, it has to be our way all the time or there's just not going to be a relationship, right? Does that describe you? Now, I'll be honest with you, there was a time in my life where I absolutely would not give in. I'm pretty compliant now. But there was a time in my life I just wouldn't give in. To me, compromise was like the unpardonable sin. 
like Christians, you don't compromise on anything. Now, I'm not talking about biblical principles. I'm talking about life. I'm talking about perceptions and viewpoints, perspectives. You, you know, I, I just wouldn't compromise on anything. And then I got married. <laughs> and then I had children. And they grew up to be teenagers. Have you noticed you've never seen a bumper sticker that says, ask me about my teenagers? Have you noticed that? You don't do that, do you? You know why? Teenagers are thinkers. And as parents, it forces us to think in return. And, and guess what, parents? Sometimes, if you're honest, they're right. That means that we may have to admit that we're wrong. And as parents, that means that we may have to work toward a compromise. And I got to tell you, if you are an insecure parent, that will drive you up a wall. When both sides have good support, look for a compromise. Third, when the conflict persists, care enough to work it through, don't run. Now, I'm going to say more about this in a few weeks. But let me just say this right now. We live in an escapism world. I think in our lives, many times when we're right on the verge of a solution, we run. We quit school. We quit marriage. We quit relationships. We quit jobs. We take off. It seems like right when God is ready to show up and do something amazing, he looks and we're gone. Let me tell you a secret. You cannot handle conflict on the run. You cannot handle conflict over your cell phone. You cannot handle conflict by texting are emailing you cannot do it you're going to have to sit down and this is the key you're going to have to have a solution driven conversation the problem is when we deal with conflict we usually don't have solution driven conversations what happens is we get defensive and we have accusation driven conversations but if we were going to have a solution driven conversation what would it look like let me give you four principles and i told you the book of ephesians is the most relational book in the in the new testament let me give you four principles from ephesians 4 that would allow you to have a solution driven conversation first of all you've got to communicate truthfully notice what paul says in ephesians 4:25 therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully you know what that means that means in a solution driven conversation no lying no exaggeration, no rationalizing. I mean, as hard as it may be, that's where you have to start. Think of it this way. You begin with a lie, you end with a lie, okay? You've got to communicate truthfully. Second, you have to communicate tenderly. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says, instead, speaking the truth in love. Notice the word love there, that's the key. You see, truth without love is brutality. And I'm just going to be honest with you. Christians are notorious for that. I have some young staff that are wired this way. Well, I'm just going to tell them what I think. You know? I'm just going to give them a piece of my mind. I'm like, well, hang on to it. You don't have that much to lose. So, you know, keep, keep, keep as much as you can, you know? <laughs> truth without love is brutality. But love without truth, just telling somebody what they want to hear, well, that's hypocrisy. So you got to speak the truth in love. This is what Proverbs 15:1 says. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words cause quarrels. Yeah, see? So communicate truthfully, communicate tenderly, don't argue, don't be harsh, don't get defensive. In fact, let me give you the seven commandments of, of non-defensive communication. And this is great for all of our conversation. Here's the first one. Thou shalt not use absolutes. 
Don't use you always, you never, every single time. Absolutes are never true. So don't even say it. Never use absolutes. Second, thou shalt not bring up the past. And this is really for you ladies because you're smarter than guys. And if you argue with any lady long enough, eventually they'll begin to bring up the past. See, guys, we're not that smart. We don't remember. We forget everything. Ladies, you don't forget anything. You're like an elephant. Probably not a good analogy. I realize that. But, <laughs> but you know, ele elephants don't forget. That's all I'm thinking, okay? So you ladies, you, you, get a, you get in an argument with you guys, you're going to nail us every time, okay? So ladies, take it easy on us. You're smarter than we are, but don't bring up the past. Third, thou shalt not name call. That little special name you have for your spouse maybe you call her by your her mom's name I should probably move on but you know what I'm talking about because you know yeah, I got him right there thou shalt not compare well you know if you'd just be more like him if you would just be more like her all right here's the I would never do to you what you did to me don't do that don't compare here's a big one thou shalt not threaten don't give ultimatums don't say things, well, if you don't, then I, and don't ever, if you're married, don't ever bring out the D word. Because when you drop the divorce bomb in a conversation, when you use that word, you know what you just told your spouse? Never thought that was an option, but it's out on the table now. You cannot put it away. You cannot take it back. You know what it's like? It's like going up on the top of a hill on a windy day and, and, and shaking out a pillar down feathers. You can do everything you want to to get those feathers back in. It ain't going to happen, right? And when you let the D word out as a, as a possible option, don't threaten. Six, thou shalt not interrupt. I think sometimes we finally let our defenses down and we finally get on a roll in a conflict discussion. Maybe we're getting to the real issue and somebody will interrupt and all of a sudden we're off the subject and we're off on a rabbit trail. Let the other person finish. You know, in our home, when we had kids, uh, it was a spoon. You know, whoever had the spoon got to talk. And you couldn't interrupt them. And my boys would be talking. I'd be like, you know, because you can't say anything, right? You got to let them finish. Don't interrupt. And seventh, thou shalt not give up. You got to stay at it. Communicate truthfully. Communicate tenderly. Obey the seven commandments. Third, communicate timely. Ephesians 4.26 says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. What Paul is saying there, if, if you let, if you're angry and you just let it sit there, if you just let it hang on, in other words, if you don't deal with it, he says before the sun uh, goes down, I don't, think, I don't think he meant that literally because if you live in Alaska, that could be months, you know what I'm saying? I think, I think he was saying if you don't deal with it in a timely manner, it's going to grow, it's going to fester, it's going to become a bigger issue, and before you know it, Another grave will be dug in your relational cemetery, and you won't even remember what the issue was. Communicate timely. By the way, we learned this from Paul and Barnabas. You may not always be able to come to a resolution. In other words, you may not always be able to solve the issue. But as a friend in a relationship, you do have to come to reconciliation. Sometimes you just got to give each other a hug and say, I don't know how to solve this right now. We're just going to have to agree to disagree. In other words, you can reconcile now. You can put off the resolution for later. So communicate timely. And then fourth, communicate tactfully. Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. If you, if you have your Bible, circle the word listen. You got to communicate tactfully, truthfully. You, you got to do it timely. You got to build up in that conversation. But understand, you've got 
to listen. You've got to hear what they're really saying. That's half of the process. Now, I think of all the Beatitudes, you know, we went through a series on the Beatitudes a few months ago we called Happy. Of all, all the Beatitudes that are found in the Sermon on the Mount, I think my favorite one is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. It says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And we know what it means to be a peacemaker. We think maybe of a president or, or a secretary of state, a Henry Kissinger. You know, we, we know what it means to be a peacemaker. But what does it mean when Jesus says, if you're a peacemaker, you're going to be called sons of God? I mean, after all, there's only one son of God, that's Jesus. And not only that, we know that he came as the prince of peace. We talk about it every Christmas. The prophet Isaiah said one of the reasons he came to this earth was, was to be a prince of peace. In other words, he was sent to earth by God to reconcile, reconcile wayward kind of self-willed sinners back into a relationship with God. I mean, it was as if God said at a certain point, you know, enough of this separation, enough of this alienation, enough of this isolation. I'm going to send my son to earth, and he's going to die on a cross to take care of your sin so you can be reconciled back to me. So in that sense, Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker. But Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5.18. He says that once we've been reconciled back to God through what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, God puts within our spiritually transformed heart the longing to become, as a follower of Jesus Christ, the longing to become a peacemaker. In the Bible, it's called the ministry of reconciliation. Right? And we witness the ministry of reconciliation when we, as Christ followers, are motivated, not in our own strength, because we can't do this, motivated through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to put an end to all of our private battles, all those private skirmishes, all those wars that are going on in our relational worlds. Maybe it's with your children, your spouse, your parents, a coworker, a boss, a roommate. Maybe it's with someone else who attends our church. But Jesus said that day on the, on the hillside, blessed. And if you were here in the series, we know that word means happy. Jesus basically said this, happy are those who will bury the hatchet and seek resolve. Happy are those who will say enough is enough. I'm going to take the high road. Enough anger. Enough rumors. Enough gossip. Enough slanders. Enough retaliation. Enough. I'm going to seek peace. I'm going to seek reconciliation. Well, wouldn't it, be, uh, wouldn't it be great if life was this easy? This black and white. Wouldn't it be great if you could just walk out of here today and say, man, I'm going to call so-and-so. We're going to get together at Starbucks. We're going to solve this once and for all. We're going to walk out of their best friends again. Wouldn't it be great if life was that simple? And in some cases, it is that simple. Unfortunately, some of our greatest hurts in life uh, have come as a result of conflicts and issues that aren't that easily resolved. If you've been abused, that's not easily resolved. If you've been abandoned, that's not easily resolved. If you've been betrayed or deceived, especially in a marriage, that's not easily resolved. And I don't like the word, but maybe in the true sense of the word, you are a victim. Maybe you are a victim of your spouse or your parent or your child or your boss or your friend. And I'm just going to be honest with you enough, it's probably not going to be resolved just because you decide to sit down and have one, two, or three solution-driven conversations. It's going to take some time. And it's going to take some patience. And it's going to be, it's going to be a process. But more than anything else, it's going to require forgiveness on your part. 
See, a lot of us, we think forgiveness, that means we're letting the other person off the hook. No, forgiveness simply means I am releasing it. I am letting it go. So next week, we're going to ratchet it up a little bit, and we're going to talk about what does it really mean to forgive. And let me tell you why this is so important. It's because you should never confront. You should never even have a solution-driven conversation until you've released the grievance until you've already reconciled that in your own life. I'm letting it go. Forgiveness is for me. I'm letting it go because if you don't, you'll show up for that conversation and you'll have an ax to grind or you'll want your pound of flesh or you'll want to get something off your chest. You got to show up and look at that person and say, the forg- I- I've already forgiven you. That's done. That's not even the issue. The issue now is how do we move forward? How do we put this back together again? That's where we're going next week. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's where he's going to take you. What does forgiveness look like? I'm reluctant to tell this story because I know I've shared it before, but I didn't even share it. I know some yet last night, but I, I've told you guys before, years ago when I first started pastoring, uh, I pastored for about 10 years and small church grew to a big, big church. And I got... I got betrayed, you know. My life's just like everybody else. I got betrayed not only by a staff member, but a best friend. A friend that I had talked my father-in-law who flipped houses in California years ago to sell him at a house that he could afford because he had just gotten out of seminary. I gave him his first job, but through the, the, doesn't matter, got betrayed. I quit. I quit because I said, I think God's leading me on. Didn't make a big deal out of it. I just quit. The thing is, he was my ex, still my next-door neighbor, and he took my job. And I can remember I shared laying in bed on a Sunday morning and hearing his garage door go up and thinking he's going to go preach today at the church that I built. And I was bitter, and I, and I was done. I was done with ministry. Walked away. I served subpoenas, re- repossessed cars, videoed husbands cheating on their wives. It was a great gig, to be honest with you. <laughs> And after about six months, sitting in church one Sunday morning, God made it very clear to me, I'm not done with you yet. So I took another church up in the Bay Area. And I'm, I'm doing a message on forgiveness. I'm working at my desk, a message on forgiveness. And God said, what a hypocrite. Because every time this guy's name was mentioned, I, I just would begin to boil. You know? So I called my assistant and I said, would you give me a flight from Oakland to Burbank? And I went to the airport, I got on the plane, flew to Burbank, rented a car, went to the church. He wasn't there, he was off. Got back in the car, went to his house. I knew where he lived, he was my next door neighbor. And I knocked on the door and he came to the door. And on that flight down, he didn't know this, but I said, God, I am releasing this for good. I will never bear this again. And I said, I want you to know I've hated you for the past two years. I want you to know that. But I'm gonna forgive you. And he just stood there like this. No emotion. He's from Wisconsin. They don't have emotion up there. It's too cold to have emotion. And I hugged him while he just stood there. And I waited like, you want to say something? Didn't want to say anything. I turned around, got my car, drove back to Burbank, got on the plane, flew back to Oakland, and went back to the office. Never heard from him again. Never talked to him again. But you know what? I was free. 
Don't you want that? Or do you always want to be chained to the past? Dragging it everywhere you go. So we're going to talk about that next week. And uh, it'll be good. It'll be good for us. Father, thank you for the time we've had together today. And thank you for practical truths of your word. Thank you. I love it when we sing that song. You never give up on me. Never runs out. And Father, that's what you're calling us to in our relationships. Never giving up. Never letting that love run out. Just goes and goes and goes and grows and grows and grows. And I know that's Pollyanna and I know it takes work, but this is what you called us to. No exception. So give us the courage and the strength to be the people you've called us to be, not the people we want to be. Because in being what you've called us to be is where we find true happiness and joy. Thank you, God, for meeting here with us today. In your name we pray. Amen.